platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. The 2023 Financial Street Forum, centered on the theme Better China, Better World, took place in Beijing from November 8th to 10th. This forum has been a platform for forging cooperation agreements and fostering inclusive financial dialogues. On this week's BizTalk, we engage in insightful interviews with several experts in the financial industry, delving into the development and prospects of China's financial sector and its role in steering the world towards a better future. Our first guest is Stephen Barnett, the Senior Resident Representative of the IMF in China. Take a listen. Thank you so much for talking with us, Mr. Barnett. What's your outlook of the global economy and how has it changed compared with a couple months ago? I think the first thing when we look at the global economy, I think of one word, which is resilient. And it's good to be resilient, but actually if you look up resilient in the dictionary, one of the meanings is the ability to recover well from misfortune. So if you think about it, if the best thing we can say about the global economy is we have a good ability to recover from misfortune, it actually summarizes the situation. I don't mean to downplay it. It is good to be resilient. You know, we just published our forecasts in late October, but you know, one thing changed. We increased our forecast for China's growth. In particular, for this year, we increased it by 0.4 percentage points to 5.4%. And for next year, we also increased by 0.4 percentage points from 4.2 to 4.6. So we see growth in China this year at 5.4 next year at 4.6. And you know, if you do the math, that means that this year, China is going to account for around one-third of global growth. You mentioned you just increased your forecast for China's economic growth for this year and next year. What are the reasons behind this move? You know, so if we look at one of the keys that the data through Q3 was stronger. Mm-hmm. And what piece of data in particular? It was household consumption. Mm-hmm. We see, if I have my numbers right, I think 80% of growth year to date, based on official data, came from uh, household consumption. If we look at the household survey, we also have seen a rebound in household consumption. Uh, In many respects, this is not surprising because we're comparing to last year, where we know during the pandemic that household consumption, especially consumption of services, you know, restaurants, dining out was was weaker. So this strength in consumption, it's a good thing. And that's, I think, the, the factor that's been stronger than we had forecasted. We actually hope this continues. Having consumption grow faster than the economy, pulling growth up both this year, next year, and the medium term would be a great thing. It would be suggest that living standards are growing faster than GDP. And underappreciated point, it's actually good for the environment. In very simple terms, dining out at a restaurant is less polluting than manufacturing. So actually, as the economy pivots more towards consumption, we think it'll help a lot for China meeting the 2030, 2060 climate goals. And that also means people have the spending power and they have money to spend. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Maybe two observations there. One on the, the, the spending power. What we see globally is that as economies get richer, the share of services relative to manufacturing grows. What does that have to do with consumption? Typically, the labor share of income, how much income households get, is higher in services than manufacturing. So as economy pivots towards services, households get a larger share of the economic pie, and consumption naturally goes up. The more money households have, the more they spend. The second point is we factored in the impact 
of the new policy steps to do uh, one trillion in bonds for relief from the floods and other issues. This should help support uh, activity both this year, but this year is almost over, and in particular next year. So amid all these global uncertainties and risks, how do we make sure uh, financial stability within China? I think in China, you know, key areas would be the property sector and local government finances. I think what we've seen with recent policy announcements is that the government's very focused on containing those risks. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think also it's important to have healthy growth. At the end of the day, strong economic growth also creates a good environment for containing financial risks. So all the usual things, good regulation and supervision, good systems, good risk management, dealing with risks as they arise are all important and uh, a very strong economy. You said the word resilient means to recover well. So what are we exactly recovering from, both you know, in China and also globally? Yeah, if we think at the shocks that have hit the global economy, and the first is the pandemic. Mm -hmm. you know, growth in 2020 was the lowest since the Great Depression in, the, in 1929. So think about that. We've had the biggest global shock since the Great Depression. That's enough. But on top of that, we have a cost of living crisis, a rising food and energy prices. Then we had inflation, mm -hmm. which then led to rising global interest rates. So now if you think about low-income countries, they've been hit by pandemic, higher food prices, higher global interest rates. Actually, you can add to that a strong US dollar. There's a lot that they've had to, to deal with. So that's what I think about with resilience. And in terms of China, China's been hit by those shocks. In addition, China's undertaken a major adjustment in the real estate market, which is adding another shock to the economy. That adjustment was necessary to get the real estate market, let's say, on the right size going forward, but it's also uh, an important drag on growth. What are the challenges and risks facing the global financial markets, especially for emerging economies as inflation remains elevated while interest rates are set to stay higher, probably for longer? The number one policy priority for many economies is, is to tame inflation. Mm. Uh, it doesn't really apply to China, but for the rest of the world. And if we look, uh, the good news is we forecast that inflation has peaked and that should be coming down gradually over the medium term, eventually returning to pre-pandemic levels. This is not an accident. This reflects the hard work of central banks around the world to tame inflation. How do they do that? They have to raise interest rates, which actually slows activity, and that brings inflation down. But we've learned over years of experience that it's important not to ease monetary policy too early. Central banks have worked so hard for the past 18 months to get inflation under control. So it's really important to kind of stay that course until we see the disinflation process is firmly on, in train. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? 
The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Hong Kong, serving as a financial bridge between China and the world, is gearing up to enhance its competitiveness and attractiveness. The city aims to advance international financial collaboration through supportive policies. Furthermore, Hong Kong holds a pivotal position as both an early advocate and a key participant in the ongoing process of RMB internationalization. My colleague Zheng Junfeng sat down with Nicholas Aguzin. The CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. They discuss China's investment appeal, economic growth forecasts, and the challenges faced by the global financial market. Nicholas, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. From your perspective, are global investors still enthusiastic about investing in China? The world will have to get used to China being a very significant part of any portfolio. China is a very large economy. About 18 trillion U.S. dollars of GDP, and um, so it's it's a very significant part, and 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 investors need to have that as part of their diversification portfolio. Obviously, with the increasing in interest rates that we saw in developed markets and in additional inflation, a lot of the money is flowing more into fixed income instruments and into money market funds in the dollar market. Which created a situation where most markets around the world saw a decrease in liquidity. This is not something to one region; it's pretty much every region around the world. Markets have come down. In addition to that, when you look at、um, the stock markets around the world, valuations are affected by higher rates. To the extent that higher rates, you know, are permanent or more more long-lasting, then people use that as a discount rate over time. So that has been an effect. But without a doubt. More and more、uh, people are looking and trying to understand how will China play into my portfolio. There are ebbs and flows in the global markets, ups and down cycles. So we'll continue to see that. Right now, over the last, I would say, couple of years, we've seen like a, 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 a cycle that's been affected by interest rate environment, by inflation, by geopolitical flashpoints around the world in Europe, in the Middle East, in many places. There's a lot of geopolitical flashpoints. And that, combined with some of the tensions between U.S. and China, has also softened the conviction of some of the investors. Nicholas, thank you for offering us such big picture. How do you view China's long-term growth perspective and maybe some challenges it faces? Yeah. So,、uh, long-term, I'm still、um, very optimistic. I mean, medium and long-term. Even though um, um, some some people. You know, have some question. China has the critical mass, the infrastructure, and the investment in technologies that that will allow it to continue growing for a long time. China is the main trading partner of about 140 countries around the world. There is a growing middle class consumption still, you know, growing quite significantly. We have sectors like services,、uh, tertiary sectors, technology sectors that present huge opportunities. On a weekly basis I, see, basis, I see dozens of company coming through our exchange, 
with incredible growth plans, amazing stories that, that can really you know, boost that uh, economic output, that growth. And what are the challenges? Many people talk about the fact that population growth is declining, that people are you know, getting older, will we have enough workforce for the future and things like that. These are problems that many countries around the world are facing today, I mean, around this low in population growth. But in the case of China, I would say that there's, there's so many people still living in rural areas that are moving to urban centers. Over the next seven, eight years, we expect like close to 100 million people will move you know, from the rural areas to urban centers, creating employment, creating opportunities, generating efficiencies, boosting these companies. So I think that will, you know, probably, you know, generate quite a bit of medium long term growth. Other challenges around the real estate sector, about local government financing vehicles. Yes, of course, we have to continue addressing those. I mean, it's part of like a growing economy and, and making sure that the, any, any disequilibrium that we find in any part of the economy needs to be addressed. I think they do. I think that there's plenty of um, you know, tools that are available to manage those sectors. The amount of financing and leverage that there is in the system is a healthy level, I would say, but it can be totally controlled at this point. Still under control. Yeah, yeah, totally controlled. Yes. What roles can Hong Kong EX play in facilitating the internationalization of the RMB? Well, Hong Kong uh, has um, uh, a really uh, fortunate situation of being the most international city of China and the most Chinese city outside of the mainland. So just by that fact, over time, 75% of all the settlement that takes place in Renminbi comes through the city. So it's a really amazing you know, position to be in. As China grows, as China interacts with more and more international you know, counterparties, as that continues to grow, people want to be able to transact in that currency. And then people want to, once they have those renminbi, they want to be able to invest it. Now, HKEX has been creating more investment opportunities. So we, we have renminbi bonds that people can buy. We have equities that now are going to be quoted through a dual counter mechanism, which is a very innovative mechanism, they will be able to buy that in renminbi themselves. I mean, we are creating now an opportunity for um, people to finance in renminbi at potentially lower rates, issuing bonds in, in Hong Kong. Um, uh, Hong Kong has about one trillion renminbi in offshore um, uh, demand deposits, just deposited in Hong Kong. It's a great opportunity to create a vibrant community. And then we're also developing hedging products, whether it's China bond futures, a, 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 um, a equity index options futures that we're working to try to launch. I mean, well, both of those things we're looking to launch very soon. Hong Kong has been long recognized as international financial center, but it still uh, has a lot of comp competition from cities like Shanghai, Singapore and Tokyo. How does Hong Kong maintain and enhance its competitiveness as an international financial hub? Um, I would say that um, we, we try to interact with the market in, in multiple ways and, and we have a fantastic partnership, for example, with Shanghai and Shenzhen. Those exchanges are partners of ours to the extent that there are more offerings made in Shanghai, in Shenzhen, and international investors want to participate. 72% of those flows come through Stock Connect, our mutual connectivity program. So if they do well, we do well. 
Similarly, when we do well and we have IPOs and equity offerings, they benefit because you have domestic investors that want to invest in our market. So that's it's a, a really good connectivity program, very beneficial for both markets. With other exchanges around the world, what we have to do is to make sure that we, we um, provide, first of all, a variety of products, a diverse product. We provide depth. We provide a good service. We have great participants in our market. We are cost effective. And so we've been working quite actively to make sure that we continue driving you know, the cost down of operating through our market, uh, through co cooperation with policymakers. I mean, you may have seen that the government uh, recently announced that they're going to lower the stamp duty tax. Yeah. I mean, that's going in the right direction. I mean, trying to make our markets more effective, trying to make it uh, cheaper and, and uh, more attractive to trade in our market. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, Stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals. Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes. Of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, Mulan said, Marry me. Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river. In the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favourite podcasts. Over the past decade, China and Africa have significantly deepened their cooperation in trade and investment, with China emerging as the largest trading partner for many African economies. Notably, Standard Bank, Africa's largest bank, recognizes the pivotal role of China in driving Africa's economic growth. The bank has strategically partnered with the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, establishing the world's premier Africa-China trade and investment platform. In the last part of our show, our Lily Liu talked with the CEO of Standard Advisory China at Standard Bank. He offered insights into Africa's future growth prospects, the dynamics of trade between China and Africa, and future financial technologies. Thank you so much, first of all, for, for your time. We know that Standard Bank Group is the largest bank in Africa by assets. Uh, how is your vision for Africa's future growth reflected in your partnership with ICBC? So for us, this relationship with ICBC is, is very important. So China is the largest trading, trading partner with most African economies. 
So, so I think uh, out of the 54 economies in Africa, all but 10, um, China is the largest trading partner. So ICBC is the largest bank in China, right? Um, we're the largest bank in Africa, and jointly we've created a lot of synergy by supporting Chinese corporates operating in Africa. And how did we do that? So ICBC banks them in, in China, and then you know we bank them in, in Africa. So helping these corporates, um, you know, with their financial needs in Africa, um, it supports African growth, um, you know, through the capital that these corporates are investing in Africa and the know-how that they bring to Africa. So, so, so working together between our, our African uh, African economies and China, ICBC and Standard Bank, it's been it's been very beneficial at least for us and hopefully for these clients as well in finding it easier to land in Africa and navigate Africa. Standard Bank Group facilitates large amount of trade in between China and Africa. Uh, which sectors do you think will be the next growth driver in China-Africa trade and investment? Traditionally, you know, the largest sector for us has been energy and infrastructure. More recently, um, e um, the mining and metal sector has overtaken that in, in investment. So for us in our books, mining and metals has overtaken uh, energy and infrastructure. We do believe, however, that the continued investment in, in, uh, in, in, in energy and, and transition energy, um, that, that, that energy and infrastructure will be back. Mining and metals will remain high. Um, but for us, it's also quite important that the investment in industry or manufacturing capability or capacity continues. So, so, so there's been quite a few corporates that has been very successful in manufacturing, um, and that's important for indus industrialization, right? So, mm -hmm. so, and that creates jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so, so I think an industry and industrialization and beneficiation of, of, of African um, commodities, et cetera, et cetera, um, will, be, will, be, uh, will be rising as well. Let's talk about digitalization. We expect digitalization in finance to create more value, enable more functions. What are some of the major breakthroughs that you have made, especially in emerging technologies like the application of artificial intelligence? So we've been working with ICBC, as you know, for 15 years. Um, but in, in transactional banking, uh, we've been working together um, to create innovative products. We've got something called Sino Africa. Uh, connect or global pay as, as, as they call it here in China and, and this allows Chinese corporates to make payments in Africa from China you, you know so you can run your payroll your Africa payroll from here you can pay suppliers from here so so really um, a centralized treasury system so there's there's various other uh, products that we've uh, also worked on, you know, cross-border payments, uh, you know, renminbi, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure, etc., etc. But um, and that, this will continue to evolve, right? So we continue to work together on 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 technology that makes it easier for clients uh, to to do business and also to keep us relevant in in this in the um, China-Africa trade corridor. Mm -hmm. What can we expect of uh, technology in the future? I mean, in terms of uh, using emerging technologies, yeah. for instance, artificial intelligence yeah. in finance. So artificial intelligence clearly um, will play a big, uh, you know, it's quite a disruptive force um, in many, many industries. Um, it will be in finance as well. Um, so in Africa, in finance so far, it's been limited, believe it or not, mm -hmm. or, you know, so clearly in other industries it's been more impactful and it will come um, in finance 
um, and, and, and through these working groups that we have with ICBC, some of the learnings in China, um, you know, we will hopefully uh, apply some of that learnings early relative to, say, competition in Africa to, to, to Africa. So, but right now in finance in Africa so far, um, uh, limited, but, but it, will, it will come, right? So, so, so this collaboration between mm -hmm. us and, and ICBC is quite important so that we, we learn. So, so, so this market, the AI industry or the technology industry in China is much larger than, than, in, in, than it is in Africa. Mm -hmm. so, so, so your developments here is a bit faster, your adaptation is faster than it is with us, and, but we can export some of these learnings to Africa quicker as a result. So, so I don't think we'll be caught unawares, um, uh, you know, but we'll be learning from the developments in China. The IMF predicts that from 2024, Africa will achieve an annual growth rate of around 4.2%. That is significantly higher than the predicted global average. How do you plan to harness on this phenomenal potential in your partnership with China's financial institutions? So, so we will continue our partnership with ICBC, but indeed the entire Chinese financial sector. Chinese capital is quite important for growth, um, you know, uh, in in Africa, so so um, and and the demand is quite large, um, and and we've got great relationships, right? A lot of a lot of countries uh, in Africa with China as as a as a sovereign and as a government, um, but also you know with many of its institutions and including its financial institutions. So. So we've got um, strong relations, and 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 through continued um, exchange of of uh, of views, uh, we will we will um, continue to hopefully attract more of that. We've been operating on the continent for 164 years, so so our understanding of the opportunities and the risks on the continent, uh, I think, gives us an advantage above uh, you know probably anybody else. And so therefore we're quite a, quite a good uh, counterparty or a good partner to work with for Chinese uh, financial institutions. And indeed it is uh, quite strong at the moment and we will continue to cultivate that and the dialogue um, that, that uh, warm relationships actually uh, brings so that we respond to opportunities in a timeless fashion. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Cheers. Mr. Duplessis. Thank, Thank you, you very much. wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African. How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.